stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we launch into the fintech book with Suzanne Chisti, I want to tell you there's a copy of the book up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in the hat to win a copy of that book. The show is sponsored by Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can find Zai at hellozai.com. Let's launch into the world's first globally crowdsourced book on fintech. It's a great pleasure to welcome the author of the fintech book, the financial technology handbook for investors, entrepreneurs, and visionaries, Suzanne Chisti. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Suzanne, you're very, very welcome. I thought we'd start before we get into the content of the book to share with our audience the how you came up with the book because it's very, very unusual in that you crowdsourced it from a community that you created. We wanted to create a book for the whole fintech uh, community globally. And uh, initially, you know, we all knew that the future of finance is financial technology. And so many people in financial services didn't know what this actually meant. You know, what is fintech? Who are the fintech players? Why is it important, you know, to understand it? And so me as in my role as being the founder and the CEO of Fintech Circle, uh, we chose to write the first book on Fintech globally, in fact. And, and as you said, you know, there are various options of writing a book. One would be to do it yourself. That doesn't make sense because financial technology is such a complicated area. And we, as we know, you know, it touches, it touches retail banking, it touches commercial banking, investment banking, the whole asset management space, uh, insurance, you know, cyber security, the whole cryptocurrency, digital asset space. So what we decided was to develop a concept which basically provides an overview across all these verticals across fintech and then let the experts, the best thought leaders globally, contribute by writing a chapter for the book. And the way we did this is via a competition, you know, we as editors. And so we said, let's then let our, our members, our community vote, you know, on which content they think is particularly interesting and so we had it crowdsourced and crowd voted that the end of course editing the book you know to make it to have a common theme across the book the book is now available in more than 107 countries it has been translated into more than 10 languages and so it's really available for anybody globally you know in, in, in multiple more than 10 languages to really learn about the future of finance. Suzanne has written books on fintech for dummies also part of the dummy series it goes into the basics of fintech but I thought we'd start with that with this book because just to get everybody on the same page with our audience because it's just like the word innovation means so many things to so many people so does the term fintech means so many things depending on you the audience if you're involved in fintech what you're doing with it if you're a bank it means something entirely differently than a startup so suzanne maybe you'll give us an overview of what is meant by fintech yes a very good question and you know the way i define it it's really about 
any type of new technology and innovation across financial services. So it might be a mobile app. You know, it might be a new mobile uh, bank, new banks, which is just available on an app, for example. This would be a fintech solution. It might be, when you think about uh, regulatory compliance, you know, a compliance solution where you onboard a client. So you might have seen that when you open a new bank account. Nowadays, you can do this via your facial. You do like a facial recognition or you do a voice recognition as a way of biometric client onboarding checks. So it might be done in this way. Or it might be a solution actually for banks to deal with other corporates. So it might be a B2B, you know, fintech solution. Or another application would be payments. You know, when you want to send money abroad, Let's say you want to send money to uh, Asia. You know, normally uh, it would have cost you lots of money to do that because the commissions for international payments doing international FX were very high. You had lots of correspondent banks in between. And so the amount you sent was not the amount the other person received at all. There was a big, you know, big chunk being taken out. And so to summarize, you know, I always say fintech in the whole financial technology sector have got three benefits. Either they can help a company to increase revenues because you can improve, you know, your customer journey, make it more enjoyable, you know, for consumers to work with you. So it can increase revenues. It can reduce costs because thinking anything to do with artificial intelligence as well. So if you want to think about, you know, your back office operations, how to make them more streamlined, how to make automated decision in an asset manager in a bank, that's also fintech. So it's kind of reducing costs. And the third thing is about increasing compliance, you know, increasing uh, your, comp your, your compliance with new rules, regulations, using reg tech solutions. So for... So for any you know, financial services player, it makes so much sense to use fintech solutions. Equally for us as consumers, it opens up a new world of products and services which were much harder to access in the past and often much more expensive. And now with fintech, you know, it's easier to save, it's easier to invest, it's cheaper to invest as well. And it allows often to get access to investments at, at uh, less costs and in smaller fractions. You know, so example would be real estate investments. Nowadays, there are fintech solutions out there where you can buy a portion of a building. You know, you can buy a fraction of an asset. And so you can get on the property ladder or you can get on, you know, the an S, become an asset owner without having to have so much initial capital available, but you start slowly. And so it actually democratizes, you know, access to finance and access to opportunities. And uh, the area we see that a lot as well is financial inclusion. And, uh, and you know, in financial inclusion, Aiden, is a, is a topic which we very strongly believe in uh, as so important to our society. And in the past, when we talked about you know, 2 billion people who have no bank accounts worldwide, we often looked at emerging market countries. And we looked at Africa or Asia, and, and we thought about 
you know, all the all uh, those countries where so much poverty exists. But we should not forget that financial inclusion also is an issue in the UK, for example. You know, in the UK, we've got four million people who have got no bank accounts, even in the UK. And you think, how do they survive? Do you know how do they live, you know, having no bank account, even in the UK? And, uh, and 40% of uh, households don't have enough money uh, you know, safe that now, you know, we're talking about heat or eat, you know, do you heat your houses or do you eat or feed your children, you know, so it's, these are horrible choices nobody should have to make, but it shows us that financial inclusion is a problem at home, you know, so we need to solve it globally. And hopefully if the fintech sector can help people do that and help them also survive this cost of living crisis we are in now. Let's build on that, Suzanne, because you, you dedicate a huge portion of the book to the social impact that fintech can have. And indeed, it's the vision behind so many of the founders of these startups is that they want to drive financial impact. And then hopefully we'll get to collaboration as well between legacy banks and the opportunity for legacy banks, because oftentimes it's easy to do these shows and focus on the negatives for an incumbent like a bank. But absolutely, there's huge opportunities as well that you talk about in the book. But let's get to that social impact. I loved some of the examples you gave in the book. One, for example, that just would not dawn on people, and many people who listen to the show will be in a position of privilege where we will never experience this type of issue. But I remember as a child going traveling and going to college, for example, I studied in Cologne in Germany, and we had to put coins in the meter to get electricity. <laughs> and when you think about that, you think, oh, well, that's something in the past. But in certain countries, that still exists. But it's not possible because people think it's too risky to have a meter to put coins in because the, the coins will get stolen. And some of the examples you give us, and you don't have to focus on this one, for example, is fintech can actually solve those problems for people. Exactly. I mean, that's such a good example, Aiden. And and I think it comes down to our society becoming becoming um, cashless long term, you know, where people don't carry so much cash anymore as we did in the past, which was accelerated by the COVID crisis. You know, I remember when we had, uh, you know, when the COVID became uh, and, and made us all being at home and we were afraid of touching banknotes, you know, were afraid of getting the virus. And so people just became much more cashless, almost as a result of COVID. And, um, and this, of course, allows new business models emerging because people, if they, and also has got issues, because when you think about homeless people, you know, in, in the UK, we have got, um, it's called the big issue, you know, you might have a similar magazine in, in Ireland, you know, where homeless people have got the opportunity to become vendors selling the big issue to people walking by. And until COVID, everybody paid coins and paid cash. And then all of a sudden, you know, less people were on the road, everybody had no cash anymore. So how can we help, you know, big issues vendors to buy their magazines? And and now, and of course, the issue was that if you're homeless and have no address, it's almost impossible in the past to get a bank account, number one. And it was certainly impossible to get a payment terminal, to know that you could accept credit cards if you don't even have an address. And now this has changed. Now banks have decided we need to help, you know, uh, homeless people in this case. 
So our big issue, vendors in the UK now can also accept credit cards. So this is an example, you know, where fintech solutions literally help you uh, from, you know, help you move up in society. So it helps social mobility uh, clearly every single day. And, um, and so very meaningful, you know, very meaningful impact indeed. Other examples you give, for example, there was something shared recently on Twitter and also in the newspaper where an elderly gentleman had to get pay £16 on a taxi fare to go to the bank and actually didn't have the £16 to afford. So by digitizing the bank or making it more accessible, you're providing opportunities for that. And I'll quote a quote from the book because this is again one of the challenges we're privileged. We don't know these problems because we don't encounter them. But here it goes. It is so far away, I waste so much time and money to cash my paycheck. Once I arrive at the bank branch, a disgruntled guard asks me what I need. He is a bit hesitant to let me in because of my looks. I wait in line for 80 minutes to cash my check. I want to be invisible. I never, I'm never comfortable in a bank. As I leave, I took my money into my clothes to hide it away from robbers in the bus. Because of the rain, it takes me forever to get back home. When I arrive, I light up a small fire to get warm and spread the bills to dry. I finally breathe. This time, I was able to make it home safely. And that's from Juan, a 30-year-old, 38-year-old gentleman in Mexico. These are the challenges that are invisible to so many of us, but that fintech and a cashless society can actually help. I think you just read out one of the favorite sections of the whole book, which is like almost moved me to tears, you know, when I read it the first time and when he submitted his story, because as you said, I would have never known about the situation in Mexico if he would not have submitted, you know, his report to us sitting in London. And it opened a new world, you know, where people get discriminated based on the skin color or because they don't look wealthy enough to enter bank branch, you know, I mean, kind of things which are ridiculous in our eyes, uh, but people have been stigmatized, you know, and like, like he wrote, you know, they have to travel hours to go to a bank branch if they live in the countryside. And this is, you know, unacceptable. And FinTech brings now the bank branch on their phones back to their rural area so they don't have to do that anymore. And that makes such a huge difference, you know, and it's such an important opportunity for people to focus on what really matters, you know, of working, of earning the living for the families, but not having to do all these admin tasks. Because in reality, you know, often what we say in financial services, you know, people don't necessarily, it's not like you wake up in the morning and say you want you want a certain financial service or product, but it's something you need in order to do something else. You know, the best example is if you want to buy, let's say, a flat or a property, you don't want to buy a mortgage, but you need a mortgage to buy, an, you know, a property. So it's almost a secondary need. And therefore, when you um, when you have got, you know, financial services, which actually understands that the customer journey is a different one. And we need to support the customer in making their lives easier and supporting Often, most people don't have enough time, you know, to think about our finances. So it must be as easy as possible, as convenient as possible, in order to really help people out, you know. And that's what fintech tries to achieve. And uh, and I think it comes back also to the to the example you gave, is that often fintech founders, you know, they are 
coming either from um, an attitude of being really disrupting the status quo. You know, they want to disrupt the status quo in order to improve things for the better. And often those things are easier to do if you start from scratch because you've got nothing to lose. You know, you up, you can invent the world and you can think outside of the box, which is often harder in a large company to do. And so that's why we've got seen lots of innovation in this space. Let's move on to that opportunity because that in itself is an opportunity for banks is to be more human and more conscious and more connected to people rather than just providing a service like you say it's like look at the what the real thing they're trying to achieve is not the actual tasks driven thing it's what's the vision that they have in their head etc and this is a huge part of your work and what I love about the book is that it it just like we saw there with Juan in Mexico it gives different viewpoints from different parts of the world so we can get a more fuller picture because oftentimes decisions in banks are made from an executive team who are absolutely disconnected from the realities for some people on the street and that is something I'd love to talk about next. And I think you're totally right so it's it's about and you know and I think to, to, to the reason why we chose this crowdsourcing of opinions is because the readers benefit you know anybody who reads the book gets so many different perspectives and I almost think it's like a puzzle piece often you need different puzzles coming together for you to see the whole picture and make up your own opinion then where you believe the future's priority should be but it's good to have different perspectives coming together and that's you know that's definitely was the philosophy we had with the book and in terms of banks um, you know I would say all established players established banks insurance companies when I think back to five six years ago you know those often leading leading financial services players saw the fintech sector as a competitor as a threat you know, somebody, and I remember it was the chairman of, of JP Morgan at the time, he said, these startups, these companies are out there to eat our lunch. You know, there was clearly there's competition coming and let's fight the competition. Today, you know, five years later, six years later, we see much more collaboration between financial services players and fintech companies because the large banks all have realized that the competitors are not the startups. The competitors are the tech giants. You know, the competitors are Amazon, Apple, you know, those Facebook, you know, those are the actual competitors because many of them are Google. They all have got banking licenses already. And you could easily imagine, you know, a Google bank or an Apple bank. You know, we already all, you know, many of people have Apple payments on their phones. So these are the actual competitors of the tech giants, not the fintech companies. In fact, the fintech companies are much better to work with because the fintech companies with their innovation potential and their ability to move fast can actually help banks to move faster. So that's why, you know, the collaboration between both is so important because banks have got millions of customers, you know, have got an incredible brand name unknown and trusted by consumers while fintech companies have got this ability to innovate, to come up with new products and services, but they don't have millions of customers yet. They don't have the deep compliance pockets, you know, to get everything approved, regulated. So by working together, 
you're actually creating a wonderful marriage, you know, a kind of complementing both sides. And, uh, and so I think it's to the big benefit of both to really collaborate and work together. And that's what we have seen over the last few years, where almost every large bank and insurance company has set up collaboration opportunities with fintech companies or insured companies in the insurance sector. And this makes so much sense. And so I'm really excited about those partnerships. Let's talk about the aspect there of, I suppose it goes to both trust and brand and also who the real competitor is. You mentioned Amazon, Apple, for example, because it will be unbeknownst to many of our audience that Sears, the company who went bankrupt recently, was actually a bank. It had a really successful financial aspect to the business, but it sold it off to focus on its retail business. And that was based on the trust in the brand. And if you think about Amazon and Apple, what they're doing for years is laying down the pipeline to build trust with us. And not with this view of becoming banks, but it has enabled them to become banks because they already have so much of our data that they can flip it over and be able to, they know they've identified us, they know our buying habits, etc. They know our income in some cases because we can afford certain amount of products. And this paves the way for them to become the real competitor, as you said, not just fintechs. Perhaps we'll share some thoughts on this. What it comes down to, you know, what you just said, Aiden, is data. So how much data have you got access to and available to make better decisions for your customers, what their needs are, what they need, what they are, who they are, you know, and what products and services they need. And I give you an example. You know, when you think about getting a loan from a bank. Normally in the past, you know, if a company wanted to get a, a corporate loan, they would submit monthly statements, you know, the PL and their cash flow statements. And based on that, the bank would go back, analyze, you know, the business plan and come come after a few weeks, you know, with an offer for a loan. And um and it was based on on historic data. You know, it was really based on historic data. When you think now Amazon, as an example, Amazon provides, you know, loans to SMEs and to those SMEs who trade on the Amazon platform, you know, who buy and sell and, and sell products, you know, on the Amazon platform. And so you can imagine the data Amazon has got access to because they know who all their customers are. They know if they're getting paid on time. They know how much their daily turnover is because everything goes through Amazon. So if Amazon provides them a working capital loan, they have got better data than any bank would have. And therefore, they can provide and they could price a loan even more attractively than a bank who doesn't have this granularity of data available. So you can see from a bank's point of view how this competition, you know, becomes stronger and very difficult to compete long term. And therefore, you know, it comes down to data, it, like like you said, and of course, because as a bank and as a, and a financial institution, you're highly regulated. You have to be very careful, very responsible with data. And often, what we have accused the tech giants for is misusing our data. You know, for advertising gains, where our data in aggregated form, you know, is then being sold or is being made available to advertisers, so that. The tech giants win and we don't, as the consumers, don't get anything for that, while banks behave much more responsible. And I think that's a good thing, you know, that I think people would trust, you know, their banks much more than they would trust tech giants. 
But I think the key thing is one needs to learn how to use data for the benefit of the consumer. You know, because if I, as a consumer, give up my data, I want to get something in I want something getting in return. You know, I want to get a better service, a better product. And uh, and that's what often these collaborations are for. You know, and, and as you said, we, we wrote a chapter, you know, in this in this book, in the FinTech book, which is called Enterprise Innovation, where we talk about, you know, what do large companies do? And we provide examples how to work with FinTech companies to really innovate internally. And the key thing is there are two ways, you know, of, of, of being, you can either be an entrepreneur, you know, launching your own business and being your own fintech CEO and creating a fintech startup from scratch, or you can be an intrapreneur, which is an innovator inside a large company. And now, you know, more and more people want to be entrepreneurs in large banks, in large insurance companies, asset managers, and create new products and services inside in a larger player where the you know the money is there to innovate and its funding is maybe easier and of course you've got a safer job to some extent because you are you can rely on your monthly pay check to come in and so you can be an intrapreneur as well and so i think it allows you know the financial service sector to innovate you know and for individuals in our own jobs you know to choose do we want do people in banking, for example, want to jump ship you know, into the fintech sector completely or would they like to stay and work for a large company and innovate inside a large company? And both are equally you know, valuable journeys to choose from. And, uh, and so that's, I think, very exciting. You know, the financial service sector offers more exciting roles now for creative people than it ever has in the past. And oftentimes... A lot of banks, for example, are looking for people who went and maybe tried to be an entrepreneur startup and didn't work out for them. And they're bringing them back because they have this new lens through which they can see and add huge insights to a bank. I thought on that point, you mentioned the word trust several times. And one of the things the banks have is trust. To an extent, it's partially broken after 2008, 2009. But it's been regained slowly. But... The big challenge, and this is spelled out in the book, is we tr we love these fintechs, we love what they offer, but if they, in a second, broke trust, we drop them like very, very quickly. And herein lies a challenge, the trust challenge, both for the banks and for the fintechs. But you'd say also that this is one of the aspects of collaboration, is that the fintechs, the startups, can actually collaborate with the banks because they know where the blockers are, and perhaps they can also help the fintechs break through those blockers. Perhaps you'll share some thoughts on both that trust and I suppose it's regulation. 100%. So I think in terms of regulation, you know, I always say regulation uh, is a good thing. You know, regulation is a good thing because it protects consumers. So it, it starts out in, in, in with the basics that if you know, if you're a customer of a bank, you know, in the UK, it's up to 85,000 pounds, you know, of your money is safe. Even if the bank would collapse, you've got your 85,000 pounds safely uh, protected, you know, because you're dealing with a regulated bank. And if you're not regulated, that's not the case. So as a customer, you clearly, you are protected and you know, you several levels of duty of care being being given to you working with a regulated entity. 
And um, and as a, as a fintech company, you know, there are two types of fintech companies. Some are software companies who do not need to be regulated. Others are fully regulated entities. So they are, they are both, you know, possible. And those ones who are software companies often want to work with a regulated entity, such as, such as a bank, you know, because in order for them to really reach to their to the end consumers of the bank, they want to use and work with the trusted brand name of a bank. And these B2B fintech companies then white label their services under the brand name of the bank. So when you when you think about uh, you know, large banks, often company fintech solutions, they are not, you don't see who has been the fintech companies who has developed that, but it doesn't matter anymore. It's white labeled and the, the brand of the bank is the one which the customer sees because it's it's offered among all the other services as well. But I, I give you one good example is um, Starling Bank. You know, Starling Bank in the UK is one of the biggest challenger banks in the UK, led by uh, a great female entrepreneur and ex-banker, you know, who launched Starling Bank, who is the CEO uh, of Starling Bank. And, uh, and she has created a so-called marketplace. And in this marketplace, she offers other fintech companies who offer complementary services to the current account Starling Bank offers want to access Starling Bank's customer base. So an example would be Pension B. So Pension B is another fintech company offering pensions savings. So if you want you know, to save for your retirement long-term, but you want to make it easy, convenient on your app, you can use Pension B, for example. And on Starling Bank's marketplace, you can open up your current account you know, with Starling Bank. Equally, you can add a pension to your to your um, financial solutions, you know, to really start easily every month saving into your pension pot. And you can, of course, aggregate all your previous pensions together in one location if you want to do that. So it comes down to making it convenient to you know for the customer, but also to make sure that the customer can trust the entity he's working with because they are fully regulated. So that his deposit is fully protected. And, and he knows that he will get the best you know, customer service and duty of care. I thought we'd talk about that aspect, Suzanne, the aspect of collaboration, but more deeply than that. So bear with me here because there's, an, there's a metaphor that I absolutely love for this. And as I was reading the book, it came to mind, and I've used it before for the concept of collaboration. There's a, an, an animal that resembles a jellyfish called a Portuguese man of war. It's a, an amazing looking animal. But it's what's called a siphonophore. And what that is, is a collaboration of loads of entities coming together. And each of those entities have evolved over time to have a specific function for the survival of this overall entity, this creature, the man of war. And it came to mind because it's like, that's exactly what I believe the future of a bank to be, where it is this overall brand, but it, within it, it's almost like an app store where each of these little organisms could be a fintech that's working together for the survival of the overall animal. And, and for that to happen and for it to evolve, it needs that collaboration. Yes, there's some element of competition, frenemies, if you want to call it that. But in order to survive, there has to be this co And this, again, is an aspect of the book. 
Very important. So we use the word cooptition in the book to explain, you know, what it means. And as you said, it's sometimes you compete and you cooperate at the same time. And that's what definitely is an example you just gave is that banks became platform business models where they provide the big platform and with so-called open APIs which are application programming interfaces. It's almost like Lego pieces. You know, with Lego pieces, you connect other fintech solutions on top of the banking platform. And therefore, for the end client, it's one connection into the bank, but he has got, you know, so many solutions on the platform he can take or she can take advantage of and, and use because it's part of the platform these banks are building. And the key thing is these open APIs, because as a bank, if you have got these application programming interfaces, what it actually means is that it makes it easy for technology companies to work with you and to provide their services to you. And if you don't have open APIs, they can't work with you because they can't share data. They can't. You can't work with each other, and that's very important because. When we think back to, um, and I, I don't know if you remember the time when Facebook was founded, we also had another company which was called MySpace. I'm not that young, Suzanne. Thank you, though. <laughs> I remember, you know, it was like uh, probably 20 years now ago, you know, and, and MySpace was the biggest social network in the world. You know, Facebook didn't even exist yet. And, and MySpace, uh, you know, was growing very well. And then Facebook was founded by Mark Zuckerberg. And Facebook in the first year had no growth. It was just very stable, you know, didn't grow very much. While MySpace grew further. And then both the CEO, you know, Mark CEO of MySpace, made very different strategic decisions. And, and Mark Zuckerberg, he decided he wanted to open up using open APIs for Facebook, while the CEO of MySpace made a huge mistake. He said, no, we want to be closed. We want to be a closed shop. We want to innovate only internally because we've got the best IT teams and the best you know, teams. We don't need to work with anybody around us. But this was the death for MySpace because on Facebook, which was you know, at that time, very humble and saying we want to work with the whole community and creating the ecosystem around Facebook, just it took off. You know, they have had the best developers working for Facebook and therefore made Facebook, you know, a global superpower. While MySpace went out of business because they decided in a very arrogant way that you know, we've got the best talent in-house. We don't need to work with anybody around us. And this is so important for financial services because our leaders across financial services had to make the same decision as MySpace and Facebook did, you know, 20 years earlier. And they had to decide, do we want to be a closed shop? and risk, you know, going out of business, or do we want to open ourselves up and co collaborate, you know, with fintech companies and therefore make ourselves more competitive because we believe in collaboration and in the powerful ecosystem. And that's, I think, has been the main driver has, you know, for our industry moving forward has been this openness and having now open ecosystems to work in as a recipe to success. And that requires a huge change in mindset. And, and you know, I have huge empathy for legacy banks here because they were, in a way, programmed a certain way for the way the world worked. And now the world has absolutely changed. 
and it's difficult to retrain yourself because there's a lot of unlearning involved in order to relearn this new way of doing things and it feels wrong for so many leaders in banks as well but that's a that's a whole different book I think yes <laughs> I'd love to share this because we have a huge audience in Australia a growing audience in Australia and in the book as well you focus on all the different fintech hubs across the world and a huge hat tip to London where you're based as well you even mentioned Austria and there the Netherlands there's case studies based on those people who wrote for the book across all those different in all those different geographies but I thought we'd share anything you had from Australia perspective because this also opens up the question of well you have to be very careful where you set up your startup if it's a fintech because the rules are very different in in places like the states for example it's not a centralized regulatory body there every state has different rules that causes huge problems if you go to scale you might be able to create a business in one of those but it might not be able to scale across the states even in in china for example there's been huge changes in regulation over there in the last 10 years so that's upset the entire apple cart for businesses and business models that were developed on regulatory rules and it's changed everything but there's a lot in there Suzanne so take it whichever way you want but I'd love you if you had anything to share for our Australian audience that would be really useful uh, I, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I'm Austrian. And just a little funny anecdote. I then I and I was in Australia and I love Australia. Uh, you know, we went, I remember as a student, we were traveling, I was traveling around with a friend of mine across for six weeks, you know, in Australia. And then I went to uh, other countries and often people asked me about the wombats and the kangaroos in Austria. Then I said, no, Austria and Australia is not the same thing. We have got, you know, two, two countries, um, you know, here completely different. And Australia, you know, I think has got an incredible, an incredible financial services sector and very, very good entrepreneurs and startup founders. And so there are lots of fintech hubs, a fintech, you know, like you said, fintech hubs, we've got multiple hubs globally. And in Australia, we've got very much in Sydney, in Melbourne, car in in um even in in um Adelaide, you know, there are uh, hubs emerging. And the advantage of Australia, of course, is because it's a it's a continent which is also very much um offers everything, but there are not that many people. So you can easily try, you know, you can try new products, new solutions out and you have got, and you people know each other more and more and help each other. So you have got the opportunity to grow a lot, you know, from Australia, uh, from the base and then grow across Asia. And of course, there are, you know, leading banks uh, in Australia who are very open supportive of the fintech sector. So we see, we see, I would say lots of uh, leadership, you know, fintech leadership coming from Australia. Uh, other areas in Asia would be Singapore. You know, we see lots of fintech leadership happening from Singapore. There's a very active regulator as well. And I think we should not forget the role of regulators because the financial regulators play a huge role in supporting, you know, the fintech innovation, the fintech sectors uh, ha happening. And, uh, and then, you know, we see lots of opportunities, lots of hubs emerging across Europe and also across in the States, you know, of course. Uh, so globally, there are 10, 15 big cities, you know, which, which make up these global fintech hubs. And I think 
As a global citizen, what I like most is collaboration across these fintech hubs via fintech bridges. Because what you would want is you would want, for example, a fintech Sydney startup, you know, founder who is based in Sydney, who came up with an incredible solution which works in Australia to have an easy option for him or for her to move to London, you know, via Fintech Bridge, and then be already accepted by the FCA because the regulator in Australia has given them approval to have a softer landing you know, in the UK or in Dublin and vice versa. You know, if there's an Irish Fintech company who wants to move to the UK or Australia, you know, it should be easy for them to do that after they've proven their worth in their home market. And that's where I think it becomes really interesting because then we can really share best practices globally. And when, when I think about financial inclusion, there are lots of great opportunities in Africa. You know, where we see new innovation happening, uh, which is coming out of African countries, which we would benefit of in the West you know, and having opportunities from fintech startups, let's say from South Africa, you know, to come to us, to 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 Australia, to come to London or come to New York. Again, this would benefit all of us. And, you know, one of the big themes in fintech, of course, are ESG now. You know, ESG, it's about we call it also green fintech. And, and one term is how can you measure your carbon footprint? And your carbon footprint, you know, the calculations are the same globally. You know, globally, it's, you know, you, you want to know what is your carbon footprint. And there's a, a new term, Aiden, for you now, which I learned myself. It's called, are you carbon obese or not? You know, so we want to know, everybody should know, are, we, are you carbon obese? Am I carbon obese or not? And if I am, how can I reduce my carbon footprint? And so we see now fintech startups developing solutions based on how, how you spend your money. You know, to give you a, a statement at the end of each day or end of each week, end of each month about what's your carbon footprint. And those solutions are globally portable. You know, and this is very exciting because you can, no matter where you go and where you travel, you know, these are exciting solutions, easy to use and, uh, and allow and would really help us to move to our world of becoming net zero you know, in, in, in the next uh, next two decades uh, so that we achieve our global net zero targets. And so it really comes down to collaboration, not just among established companies and startups, but among global fintech hubs. And that's, I think, what's the powers of our, of our young industry to really work together, you know, for the improvement of our society, of our environment, and being able to make these changes, which we all want to see, you know, to that we contribute to those changes. Beautiful. I think that's a beautiful way to wrap it up, Suzanne, because this idea of collaboration is at the very heart of the show as well, because from a, for us to be able to survive the complex issues that we have in society, we have to collaborate and work together as well and be open minded mentally have open APIs <laughs> in every single way, which is something that you do at the very heart of your work with your communities as well. So that opens me up to ask you, where can people find out more 
about this book, your other books, and indeed the communities that you run. Yeah, the best thing is, you know, to come and, and visit fintechcircle.com. So fintechcircle.com is our website where you can find lots of thought leadership. So we've got our own blog posts uh, where we write and publish thought leadership articles. We've got our own event series, lots of webinars about new topics in financial services. We also issue interesting white papers. So under fintechcircle.com, uh, we've got a section of white papers in terms of, again, the latest one we wrote about was uh, data centers and the power of reducing your energy for a fintech company, a financial services company, by choosing your data centers wisely. You know, because we all use more AI, more data. And the question is, how do you process that? You know, do you use dirty energy or do you use clean hydro energy to do that? So those things are super important and help to reduce one's carbon footprint. So that's fintechcircle.com uh, is the best way. And then, of course, on social media, we are, you can follow us, you know, across LinkedIn. We've got our own dedicated FinTech Circle group on LinkedIn. Everybody's welcome to join us. Uh, you can also join us and follow us on, on, on uh, Twitter and also Instagram under FinTech Circle or me personally under my full name, which is Suzanne Chisti, you know, all together in one name. And so then that's where we connect and connect on a, on a daily basis. You know, you get updates on a daily basis. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, author of the FinTech book, collaborator, orchestrator of the FinTech book, I should say. Suzanne Chisti, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It was lovely to speak to you, Aiden. I hope you enjoyed another curated episode by our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can find Zai at hellozai.com. And don't forget, there's a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in the hat to win a copy of this book.